This is the Scott Thompson Show podcast. A lot of people predicting what Trump's speech was going to be like. I think at the end of the day, a lot uh, would have been impressed by that. He certainly didn't seem to stray uh, off of his uh, initial message. Uh, I think a couple of times he he, kind of went off topic. Uh, I think the speech was, uh, rather than moving forward, I think he took a lot of shots at the past and, uh, you know, painted uh, America as uh, in pretty dark light. And uh, it was interesting. It would have been neat to have uh, panned through the crowd and watched the faces of Barack Obama or the Clintons or even the Bushes during uh, uh, this uh, part of the speech. But obviously, when this happens, we're completely focused on uh, the president of the United States. But uh, you could tell by the, the looks on the faces of the people, it was, uh, it was sort of a mixed reaction there. Uh, he went on to say Donald Trump did that uh, he will protect America from others and from other countries. Uh, and he said protection will lead to uh, great success. And, of course, there's been a lot of chatter over his uh, protectionist talk and, you know, wanting to nip into NAFTA and this sort of thing, although it seems to be his attention is focused more south towards Mexico uh, than it is towards Ontario. He said, uh, and Liz pointed out, he sounded a little bit like... uh, Uh, Charlie Sheen at one point saying that America is going to win again and start winning again. Uh, He again uh, sort of mildly took shots on the past administration, which, you know, normally you don't see too much of uh, during these uh, sorts of inaugurations. But he said he was going to uh, bring back jobs, uh, bring back wealth uh, and bring back dreams uh, to Americans. He said he was uh, going to build new roads, new bridges, Uh, new buildings, new infrastructure, and uh, he said he was going to get America off welfare and back to work again. Uh, He again, uh, I guess, uh, put forth his protectionist views uh, where he was encouraging everyone to, uh, and he will, buy American again and hire American again. Um, He said that... uh, that uh, he he will seek and only wishes goodwill uh, for the rest of the world. He he pointed out that the rest of the world is watching, and that he wanted them to know uh, that uh, America is going to put America first uh, as opposed to uh, other countries. He said, uh, in regard to the world, uh, he said, we will shine for everyone to follow. Rather than giving handouts, we will show by example. Uh, and 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 give them a good example to follow. Uh, again, stress that uh, America would be protected. Uh, went in and started chatting about um, uh, terrorism as well, and said that uh, of course America will look to protect itself first as opposed to others. Uh, also uh, said that uh, he no longer uh, that they will no longer accept uh, politicians of all talk and no action and that the time for empty talk is now over and now is the hour of action. Uh, and response, of course, continues to come in. Let's uh, bring in Reggie Cicchini, journalist with Global News based out of Washington, D.C. And he is with us now. Hello, Reggie. How are you today? I'm doing well. How are you? I'm not doing too bad. Thanks for taking the time on this busy day to join us. Uh, we certainly do appreciate it. What's your take? What are your thoughts on what you heard and saw today? Well, you know what? The, the speech that Donald Trump gave was it was what we expected him to do. He, he touched on a couple of the points that, you know, were big for him over the campaign, uh, t- a couple of the points that, you know, he's been talking about in the lead up to taking the oath uh, of the office. 
I think it's going to be watching over the next couple of days now to see how he actually starts to transition from the words in his speech to putting the pen on paper. And I think that's where people are going to watch to see if he's able to me- uh, mesh the two. Uh, he seemed to stay on script this time and not really deviate too much. What were your thoughts of the actual speech itself? It was a little more subdued than what we'd expect Donald Trump to say, especially if you had paid attention to him over the entire campaign. I I have a feeling that, you know, the enormity of the job is basically what weighed on his shoulders as he was walking up to that podium to make that speech. It's one thing to, you know, be bombastic and spew rhetoric heading up to that point. But once you take that oath of office and you realize that you are now the most powerful man in the world and one of the, you know, the leader of the free world, what you say is important and you're going to be held to it. And that's why I think that he was a little more reserved than he normally is when he speaks. Uh, That being said, he certainly did seem to paint a stark picture of America in the past, uh, said we're not going to be that, we're going to be this. Do you think this speech uh, chatted more about the past and other leaders than, uh, than inauguration speeches in the past? Well, I mean, I mean, I haven't paid attention to, you know, all of the inauguration speeches out there. But I mean, this this one that he gave, it was, you know, just under 20 minutes, 19 minutes. It was one of the shorter speeches that's ever been given. And over the campaign, Donald Trump really painted America as being this place of, you know, dire, this place of, uh, you know, uh, uncontrollable, you know, uh, bad things that keep happening when it comes to workforces, when it comes to immigration. And I, I think that he just really wanted to lightly touch on things that may have not been going right in the past or that at least he and his Republican Party see as not going right and try to, you know, say that he's going to be the one that fixes it. But, I mean, that's the thing now. You have Republicans and you have the people who voted him in trying to hold him to those words. What is the buzz down there? Um, uh, Obviously, and you really can't compare apples to oranges, uh, the uh, Barack Obama inauguration is certainly different, you know, perhaps more historic, although we may look at this one as being the same way. Uh, But that being said, uh, obviously more divisiveness there appears to be. What's the buzz down there? What's it like walking the streets? What's it like being around there? Well, you know what? Walking the streets, there's there's still the big, you know, um, uh, pomp that comes with any kind of inauguration. I mean, you're, you're seeing people that are really overjoyed. You're seeing people that are really excited for this new America that's about to be born. Uh, but when you're looking at the other side of it, there, there are the protesters out there saying that this is not what we want. We had the uh, vast majority of people in the popular vote not vote for Donald Trump, and we want to make him realize that he is not our president. And that's why you're seeing some violence erupt in downtown D.C. You're seeing uh, protests gathered by the, you know, the 5, 10, and 15 thousand that are starting to march their way around which is part of the reason why they brought 30,000 security forces in to try and you know keep everything calm and keep it orderly talk a little bit about that Reggie what we have heard that there are protests we haven't seen too much of that on the TV coverage what what is it like down there how extensive is it when it comes to people protesting uh, well the protests the, the big protests right now are looking you're looking towards you know the downtown D.C., so about 16, 18 blocks away from where the actual activities are right now. It was a normal, you know, peaceful protest that was making its way down, but like you have when you have certain events, if you think back to the G20 in Toronto, you have people who are going to offshoot from that protest and start to rail against the big company. Company. So you saw things like Starbucks and McDonald's, a couple of big banks with their windows broken, their doors broken. Police have been using some pepper spray to help, uh, you know, try to, to get those crowds back in order. Damage has been done, but it's nothing violent. There's been no arrests and there's been nobody hurt. So at this point, nothing uh, too extensive. Are we concerned that that might change over the day? 
Uh, well, there are concerns that protests are going to, be, you know, uh, uh, grow. There's there's one protest that 20,000 people have been uh, put their name in for, and they, they, they were uh, making their way towards checkpoints and security checkpoints to get onto the National Mall. I mean, now that the event is over and the parade is set to start around 3 o'clock, that's when security forces are really going to be watching to make sure that, uh, you know, those protesters stay peaceful and that they keep, a, you know, a distant line from where that parade heads down. Talk a little bit about the security. Can you tell that it's there? Is it uh, plainly visible? What's it like there? It's definitely visible. I mean, walking in this morning when I was leaving my house, I mean, I live 14 blocks from the Capitol building, and there was a National Guard in Humvee sitting at every single intersection on my walk into work, which is usually empty with, you know, the odd car here and there. Uh, Once you get your way downtown, 100 blocks around the Capitol grounds have been uh, secured. There's, you know, big fencing and big gates up with some concrete pillars. And then, like I said, there's 28,000 security enforcement officers, plainclothed and in uniform, positioned all the way around the city right now to try and make sure that, you know, the, the, the protesters keep their area, that the, the Donald Trump supporters keep their area, and that life can actually just continue to go on in the city. Uh, we're just watching uh, Barack and Michelle Obama leave the Capitol in uh, the helicopter. We've seen lots of shots uh, aboard that helicopter with past presidents and what that's like. What do you think is going through the minds of those two right now? Uh, of of uh, Barack Obama and, and Michelle Obama, yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, as they get on a helicopter, I mean, it, it's different. If you looked at it yesterday, they were getting on that helicopter. It was known as Marine One. Today, he's not the president anymore, so he gets on that helicopter. It's now known as Executive One because the president isn't on it. There could be a sense of relief that he's, you know, he's he's done his nine years or his eight years in office, and, you know, he, he's done what he can, and now it's a time for him to relax. And, you know, it's, it's a time to let everybody else look at his presidency and start to put the pieces together as if it was good, if it wasn't. I mean, it, on his mind right now, they're headed to Florida. They're probably sitting there thinking, it's time for a vacation. That's right. Bags are packed. I'm out of here. Uh, do you think with all of the fuss that has been made over the uh, election and inauguration of Donald Trump that it's overshadowed the exit of Barack Obama? Uh, a lot of people saying, uh, well, obviously his popularity is through the roof right now. Uh, does that have more to do with the incoming president than it does to do with the outgoing president, do you think? I think the focus on on uh, Barack Obama's 60 percent approval rating right now was it was kind of highlighted and ignored at the same time because you don't want to put too much focus on a president that's leaving because it's stepping on the toes of somebody coming in. But the fact that Donald Trump is coming in with the lowest rating uh, approval rating of any president in modern history. I mean, it, 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 it's hard to not look at the fact that President Obama is leaving with 60 percent. He did a lot of things in his presidency, some good to some people, some not so good to others. Donald Trump's now going to have to try and build on that. And if he wants to get to that 60 percent, he's really going to have to change his ways. It was fascinating watching uh, 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 the um, uh, Clintons arrive this morning and and in the face of them, it almost looked as if they were walking to a funeral as opposed to uh, an inauguration. What do you think is going through their minds? How difficult do you think it would be a day for Hillary today? That's exactly what we were saying when we were watching them, uh, you know, kind of walk through the hallway. It was, it yeah. was that moment of Hillary Clinton almost had this 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 moment of she looked like she was about to break into tears. Mm-hmm. But you have to wonder, you know, is she breaking into tears because she didn't win or because she's relieved at the fact that, you know, she's leaving, you know, the country into somebody else's hands and it's it's going to be their fault if something goes wrong. Um, you know, I think I, it was it's just like any other president that goes up there. They they've done it. They've lived it. They've walked through it. She walked through it with her husband. It's an emotional event. I can imagine that's exactly what was going through their mind right now just saying you know this this is a huge day and you, you, she can't do anything except be grateful that the country is actually just going to continue to move forward 
Uh, he, uh, Donald Trump said in his uh, speech, this is the date, uh, he mentioned the date and says this is the, d- the date that uh, uh, the people become rulers of the nation. This is the day that the government uh, now becomes controlled by you. At what point or, or how long do you think Donald has before people uh, will judge him on whether they see results or not? Sorry, Scott, you'll have to repeat that. Uh, our, our line cut out. Uh, obviously, uh, he has said that this is the date that the people uh, will now rule the nation. This is the uh, the date that now uh, the government will be controlled by the people. Uh, the days of uh, the people being forgot by the nation are no longer there. At what point will people, how long will people give him before they expect results from him, do you think, and, and start uh, holding him to what he said today? Well, I mean, it's it's hard to take that that speech, you know, at face value because this is a country that's governed by the people at all points in its history. Because the people are the one who appoint a president to lead their country. So, I mean, at, at any given point, the people are the ones who put these people into power. He, he's going to have to build on what Barack Obama left. I mean, at the end of the recession, Barack Obama had created tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of jobs. So the country wasn't as in a, a dire situation as Donald Trump made it out to be. I think that going forward, he's really going to have to look at being the jobs president that he claims he's going to be, because it's not you know, jobs are being lost because of technology, but he wasn't so quick to say that that's the reason that jobs are being lost. Mm. And people are now going to put him into a position of saying, you said jobs are coming. You need to make that happen. Uh, Talk a little bit about the divisiveness, Reggie. I mean, obviously, we had Democrats that didn't want to show up. There were some that uh, actually questioned the credibility of the election uh, after the Russian hacking and such. Uh, Now that there has been an inauguration, now that he is the 45th president of the United States, will that die down? Will there still be uh, questioning the credibility of this election and whether he should even be president or not has that is that gone I think that eventually, once we get through, you know, Senate hearings and try to get, you know, Trump's cabinet picks put in place, the Democrats are really just going to sit there and try to work forward. I mean, they just lost a big election. And if they really want to get anywhere over the next four years, they're really going to have to put their pens to the paper and work on, you know, what they can do so that either come midterms or come four years from now, they have a better chance of securing a position to either lead a government or at least have a better say in the government. I mean, if you watched the inauguration today, some Democrats were standing up there with purple pins on because they were uh, the pins had to do with the affordable health care act and that they stand in line with that they have their ideas and how they want things to be done and they they'll make sure that they say it they just have to make sure that you know they they play fair going forward if they want to win in the next couple of years what do you think politicians or political parties will learn from this i mean everybody seems to still be shell-shocked at the end of the day when do they start looking inward what will they learn from this well, I think the Democrats are already learning right now that they need to change because, you know, they lost a big election and they lost it in a big way. And they're going to have to try to figure out what they can do to put themselves forward. The Republicans, on the other hand, they really need to figure out what happened because they now have a man who's never held government office, a man who's never been in the military. And it's a businessman who's now leading a group of politicians. They are going to have to kind of work together to see, you know, where they meet a common ground and try to carry that going forward over the next four years, especially if they want to try to win a second term. All right, Reggie Giacchini has been with us, journalist with Global News based in Washington, watching it all go down today. Reggie, thanks for the time and insight on this busy day. We uh, very much appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks, Scott. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. Let's get some expert opinion on now as to, of course, what happened uh, earlier this morning and uh, the inauguration of uh, Donald Trump, his speech and such. Let's bring in Barry Eidling. He's assistant professor of sociology, McGill University, and with us now. Hello, Barry. How are you today? 
Doing well, Scott. Thank you, for, thank you for taking the time to join us. We certainly do appreciate this. Uh, your thoughts on the Trump inauguration and his speech today? First of all, it was rather short by, uh, by inaugural speech standards. Uh, it was also quite a mix of the sort of America first protectionism that, uh, that sort of was his signature during a lot of the campaign. Mm-hmm. Um, and it also was, uh, as evidenced by the rather tortured expressions of some of the other people up there on the dais with him, um, you know, he, he was also giving that sort of straight talk uh, that, uh, that, that turned a lot of, uh, a lot of his opponents off. Um, and he also, um, you know, set himself up, I think, for some pretty big challenges, because mm. if he is serious about, you know, helping out the people who have really been hurt by a lot of the economic changes of the past few decades, um, his actions by his cabinet appointments, at least so far, and what he's proposed to do, uh, don't seem to match up with that long-term strategy. Uh, he seemed to paint a, que- uh, a quite a bleak picture of America and, and talked a little bit about the past. Um, how would the people sitting behind him, uh, uh, th- what would they think about that? And was this more political, uh, an inauguration speech, than most? Yeah, I mean, I think that that was quite uh, in, in evidence that he is seems to still be in campaign mode. Uh, he was not uh, exhibiting any kind of gestures of humbleness or gratitude. Uh, you know, there were a few token remarks, but um, that was not really his, uh, his on his agenda. Uh, and as I said earlier, you know, he was not shy about um, lobbing some, you know, serious criticisms at the people behind him. You talked about the tortured expressions was the phrase you used, which was quite accurate. It was interesting watching uh, everybody uh, come in to the inauguration. Uh, once they got out into the public forum there, the public area, they, of course, had, had a lot more smiles on the faces. Uh, but certainly the walk-in uh, looked kind of grim. What do you think the buzz would be like in Washington today, in and around the inauguration? Well, I think it depends on who you are, right? Yeah. Uh, I mean, because we have to remember that there's also hundreds of thousands of people who are coming in for protests today and tomorrow. Uh, they're obviously, um, you know, quite uh, angry and, and fired up to take a stand against him. Uh, meanwhile, the, um, you know, there's going to be these inaugural balls that are taking place with the, uh, with, with the pro-Trump crowd. Um, from what I was able to see, I'm obviously in Montreal. I'm not in D.C. at the moment. Um, you know, it's it's as you would expect. Uh, you know, with with a uh, with a Republican administration coming into power, it's a much more well-heeled crowd. It's a much whiter crowd. Um, so, you know, despite the fact that you know he portrayed himself during the campaign and during the speech as the sort of tribune of the working class. Um, the facts on the ground tell a different story. Uh, what about the credibility of this election? That was obviously called into, uh, many called into question the, the credibility of this election. Uh, some obviously not, some Democrats not attending. Will that subside now that the inauguration is over? Or are we still going to see that divisiveness? I don't expect to see it at a, 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 a subsiding of that divisiveness anytime soon. Um, you know, th- this has been you know, a take-no-prisoners approach by the Republican Party. Um, and, um, you know, the, the Democrats have sort of 
uh, under Obama have tried to play along and have not really uh, understood the game that the Republicans were playing and and got uh, you know swamped as a result. Um, I think that um, you know it, I, I can I, I see some parallels with what happened with uh, George W. Bush taking office in 2000 after the very contentious election with Al Gore. Um, you know where where you started to have um, th- there were these consistent protests over the course of the administration. Um, the danger there is to uh, is that those opposed to now President Trump uh, put maybe too much faith in just restoring democratic power as as a solution to the problem rather than taking on the real problems that currently exist within the Democratic Party itself. Uh, what do you think other politicians, uh, political parties, both, both north, north and south of the border, what do you think they've learned from this election? What do they take away from it? Uh, over and above the fighting and the divisiveness, once they sit back, look in the mirror, what have the other politicians and political parties learned from this exercise? I think the, the main thing to, to learn is that uh, the policies that we've seen, not just in the U.S., but here in Canada uh, and across must, much of, of Europe and the rest of the Western world, um, have, have taken a toll on a large segment of the population. And the parties that have traditionally been the parties of the people who have, t- who have been suffering have been the people implementing it. And so the people who have taken advantage of the discontent are these people like Trump um, or, um, you know, in France, like Marine Le Pen or something, um, or someone like your, 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 one of your next guests, who are really just capitalizing on the discontent to implement, uh, to, to blame, um, you know, other populations to, you know, for Trump, it's immigrants, um, and for a lot of others, it's you know blaming it on others rather than putting forth a real progressive vision that someone like Bernie Sanders, for example, is putting forward that might actually push back against those policies that have been the cause of a lot of the distress. Barry Eidlin is with us, assistant professor of sociology at McGill University. Barry, thanks for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Not a problem. Glad to be here. Thanks. Thank you. It is one fifteen. Let's bring in Michael Tope, uh, of course, uh, former speechwriter for Stephen Harper and columnist, and he is with us now. Hello, Michael. How are you today? I'm well, Scott. How are you doing? Good. Uh, anxious to talk to you. Your thoughts on the speech? Is it what you expected? You know, it's interesting. What I thought I would hear this morning is not exactly what I expected and saw this afternoon. Um, but it was interesting how it was done, and it was actually a good speech in certain ways. In terms of the basic prose that we're accustomed to with past presidential inauguration speech from, say, Jefferson, Lincoln, uh, Reagan, Carter, and others, uh, sorry, Reagan, and Clinton as well, it's very, very different the way Donald Trump did it, but it actually works in a number of ways. It was a very fiery and populist speech <clears throat> where he talked about giving power back to the people, about making, you know, the America first movement. We're going to, you know, buy American, build American, and we're going to obviously change things on the foreign policy sphere to create a more muscular American foreign policy overall. A lot of these things are very similar to what Trump, during the whole time from the Republican presidential primaries all the way through to the November 8th election, these were the sorts of notes that he hit on a regular basis. 
It is interesting to me that he actually took it and actually created a speech which had periods of empathy um, that is not really sort of accustomed and expected with him, where he was directly talking to people about improving things, about removing prejudice from life. And he was also basically taking a very positive spin that America is going to rebuild and that the establishment, the Washington elites who've been around, you know, for years and years and have benefited while the people have not benefited, well, it's not going to be like that anymore. So basically trying to put his mark and his stamp on his presidency right off the bat. Well, won't necessarily appeal to small C conservatives like myself. I didn't hear anything fiscally conservative in that speech. That speech could have been given by Barack Obama, could have been given by Bernie Sanders very easily, it is a speech <clears throat> that will go across party lines and will resonate not only with Trump's base, which I mean obviously are following him like he's you know, a man walking on water, it will also appeal to some people who sort of say to themselves, I really don't know what I feel about Donald Trump, I really don't know what to expect from him policy-wise, but he's talking to me, he made it personal, he's going to improve my life, improve our economy, improve our stature in the world. Those are the sorts of things, whether you like Trump or you hate him, that works really well, and that will resonate with a lot of people. He did make it sound like, man, this is a new beginning. The last America sucked. This one is going to be great again. How much yes. pressure does that put on him to deliver? Where's the jobs? Where's this? Where's that that you all promised? Well, thank God he didn't use the word suck in the speech. But yeah, <laughs> you're, yeah. you're quite right. That is basically what he said. Without naming names, he did not make the speech personal. He thanked all the various presidents who came, Carter, Bush, Clinton, Hillary Clinton as well, and also President Obama, who is now a past president. He didn't make it personal about them. He talked about Washington. He talked about the establishment. He talked about the people who have been say, career politicians or longtime politicians, the ones he feels or that his staff feels or the message itself is, is being created, that they've benefited from everything and the people have had nothing. So you're right, basically he's saying that everything was lousy before, but look how much better it's going to be now. But that sort of talk, be it America first, be it populist, be it anti-establishment, because he is part of this anti-establishment wave that has been successful in various countries, it's the sort of thing that, whether you like it or not, got more than 60 million people to support him. It got him a whole a variety of states, including through the Rust Belt, places like Pennsylvania, Ohio, etc., that have not always necessarily gone in the Republican Party camp or haven't since the days of Ronald Reagan back in 80s, 80 to 84, <clears throat> during his two presidencies. Um, it's actually something that really could propel what we're sort of looking at as being Trumpism, his, his ideology, because Trump is neither a conservative nor a Republican in the modern or traditional sense of the word. He's a person who just will sort of float the way the political winds are blowing, and if he has to shift, he'll shift, be it left or right. He can take that message <clears throat> that he created here and pivot it in the direction that he particularly wants. We'll see once he starts coming up with policy ideas, who he picks for the Ninth Supreme Court Justice, how he handles things in terms of trade, you know, with NAFTA, calling NATO obsolete and all that. It's still <clears throat> a message overall in this speech that is going to mean something. And the first hundred days, a lot of his supporters and a lot of Americans are going to basically be looking to Trump to say, okay, you've had all this bluster, you claimed you're going to come in like a tornado and change everything, show me what you've got. 
How does this compare to other speeches like this? Was there more politics and less vision? Again, he, he seemed to look back at to what America was and how it was going to be great again. How does that differ from what the standard speech is in this, time of, in this type of occasion? <clears throat> yeah, no, that's a fair point. Um, in terms of flowery language, if you want to call it that, or the sort of turns of phrase that you commonly associate in a, in a presidential inauguration speech, you didn't see as much of it here. This was more Trump's persona than anything else. And that's what I imagine his chief speechwriter, a fellow by the name of Stephen Miller, who used to work for Jeff Sessions' office, and Mr. Sessions is going to be a very powerful man in the Trump administration. <clears throat> I think basically this sort of a speech was kind of a turning point in the way that we may not necessarily quote from it quite as often as we do from others, memorable lines by Reagan, by Clinton, by JFK, etc. But there was enough there, and there were a few interesting moments overall that I think people will look at. The discussion of giving power back to the people, talking about the establishment or the elites and how we're going to basically do away with them. And in many ways, <clears throat> his very positive, uplifting message, which it was, about how to make America great again, so to speak. He got that line in. I figure he would get the phrase in somewhere right Boy, at the very end. You could see it coming all the way up Pennsylvania Avenue, too, as he built to it and built to it and built to it. He, like, he knew it was coming. Absolutely, although when you sort of looked at him in the moment, there were nerves. You could actually see him a bit tense at times, yeah. maybe even wondering, you know, this is an astonishing moment in my life. This is incredible. What do I do next? But the confidence all comes back in this man. This is the most supremely confident person I've seen in some years. He basically can walk into any situation, including one where basically guns are at his head, and some he'll just smile, wink, and try to get his way through it. This is kind of the salesman technique he's had as a businessman. This is not a traditional politician. Politicians certainly have that type of personality, but they also realize that there are pitfalls to the job. There are certain things to avoid. There are typical lines, <clears throat> groups to avoid, etc. And you learn how to sort of go through the jungle or the political jungle, so to speak. Donald Trump just barrels ahead. That's his style. And his speech is very much like that. We're going to come with our guns a-blazing. We're going to fix the United States. Everything before is forgotten. Today and, you know, right now we are going to do things for the people, for Americans, for the world. We're going to improve things and make things more positive and more beneficial. It will, for a lot of Americans, it will actually attract them to him, it's then a question of what policies then come forward and whether they can then latch on to them and say, well, this kind of fits the tone that he had through the primaries, the presidential race, and the inauguration speech. Maybe there really is something to this program. Or then again, Scott, maybe not. Uh, he stayed on script. Uh, it, it appeared that, yep. uh, you know, short was sweet in this case, which was uh, obviously a good idea. We saw a shot of him uh, the other day. Uh, down, sitting down at a desk with a, a pen and a pad of paper in his hand and a, and a look on his face like he was writing his own speech. Mm -hmm. uh, that, that's what the caption under the photo was. Yeah. Uh, obviously, he didn't. There was people involved no. in it. How much input does he have? Was he writing anything on that pad of paper? If anybody who calls into your show says that Donald J. Trump wrote that speech, I would laugh. He, he did not write the speech, ladies and gentlemen. He is not a professional writer, and quite frankly, although certainly he's been successful in business, he is not an intellectual when it comes to politics. He doesn't understand that world, at least not yet. Uh, there's no question, though, that he did have some input, Scott, so you're quite right to allude to that point. And my guess is that he probably told 
Stephen Miller, his chief speechwriter, to probably follow through with some of the things that have been important to us and made, you know, made the campaign successful from the very start. And again, it all comes back to sort of the populist message of working with the people, you know, digging down the dirt, listening to others, not worrying about what the elites and the establishment say, and basically that, you know, they're, you know, they're sitting on their hilltops laughing at us. Well, you know what? I'm going to be the leader of the people, and we're going to rise up, we're going to improve things, and then we'll laugh at them. Or, if nothing else, they will be equal to us. And I think that's one of the keys that the anti-establishment wave around the world, which has hit say, the United States, the United Kingdom through Brexit, Italy through that referendum that knocked out their prime minister, and various other things, I think he's going to basically, Trump is going to take that message and say that there's a reason why people are tiring of, you know, the politics as usual crowd. They're just bored of listening to the same old message by the same old messenger. I, Donald J. Trump, am going to be something different. That is the message I think he's going to provide. And if he can actually somehow back it up, and I think it's going to be extremely hard, uh, Scott, to do so, because Washington often moves at a snail's pace. There are problems. There are pitfalls. You have to work with others, Republicans and Democrats, to get legislation through. This is not Trump's style. But if he is willing to mold himself accordingly, if he is willing to change, if he is willing to accommodate, and these are very big ifs, this presidency could be more successful than any of us, including people who are critical of him, like me, ever thought. Interesting. Uh, one last question. We've only got less than a minute left. Uh, sure. What do you think the people who were sitting behind him thought? Uh, it almost seems surreal to watch the other world or the other uh, presidents walk in. What do you think is going through their mind as they're sitting there watching this unfold and, and watching him deliver a speech? Probably just stunned silence, I think, is the easiest way to look at it. I think a lot of them probably sat in the room, and, and sure, many of them, with the exception of uh, President Obama, who just literally met him you know, a few months ago, most of these people have either met Donald Trump socially or knew him to some extent, including Hillary and Bill Clinton, and they're probably just sitting there thinking, I don't believe that this man has become the President of the United States, and he's speaking in front of probably upwards of a million people, um, <clears throat> just standing while listening to his speech, and millions upon millions of people listening to his speech on TV, radio, etc., and they're probably just thinking, how could this man, who, yeah, you know, was a, a great reality TV star, he was a successful businessman who's had big highs and big lows, but has never been involved in politics, never been involved in the political world whatsoever, how in God's name did he reach these heights and get to the point he's at? But maybe, just maybe, Scott, that is actually a good thing for them. Maybe this is a wake-up call that some people need to sort of show that anything is possible, and those that we disregard as a possible political threat, sort of like a Donald Trump or even Kevin O'Leary, who's now obviously running for the Conservative Party of Canada leadership, who I don't necessarily care for, maybe these people... They really have figured out something that a lot of us who've been living through the political playbook, and I'm one of them, maybe we've been wrong all these years. Interesting point. Well said. Michael Tobe has been with us, former speechwriter for Stephen Harper and columnist. Michael, as always, thanks for the time, especially on this busy day. Much appreciated. My pleasure, Scott. Have a good day. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. Let's bring in Kevin O'Leary. Of course, just uh, announced his candidacy for the leadership of the federal conservatives, and he is with us now. Hello, Kevin. How are you today? 
Great to be here. Thank you. Thanks very much for taking the time. We certainly do appreciate it. What are your thoughts on the inauguration of Donald Trump and, uh, and what went on today? I think it was an extraordinary speech, and it obviously sets out his agenda. A remarkable comments about government's lack of functioning for the people. I haven't seen that before in an inauguration speech. And also made it clear to us as Canadians, we're going to have some difficult times ahead negotiating with Mr. Trump because he's putting everything on the table in terms of NAFTA, and that's going to be a challenge. Are you concerned that even members of your own party, uh, the Kelly Leaches, the, the Lisa Rates, are comparing you to Trump? Is that a fair comparison? No, not really. I mean, you know, there's, there's one fact that exists that is correct. We both work for Mark Burnett in reality television. I on the Shark Tank, he on The Apprentice. That's how we you know, raised our, our brands. There's no question. But uh, there's no other similarities. I'm born of um, immigrants from Ireland and Lebanon. I wouldn't exist if there were walls around Canada. Those are not my policies and never will be. Canada's always had a contract with a society that it's open and embraces all kinds of cultures. And if you want to grow a business, it used to be that you came to Canada, but it's not that anymore. You know, when I was young, uh, the opportunities were limitless in Canada. I was very, very fortunate. And I've got kids now that are in their 20s. One's 20, one's 23. And I'm watching what Justin Trudeau is doing, and the, the, the straw that really broke the camel's back for me that pushed me into the race was when I saw that economic report out of the government that said that he was going to run deficits for 38 years and push on my kids $1.5 billion of debt, there's not a chance in hell I'm going to let him do that. Zero. I'm going to go to Ottawa, and I'm going to repeal everything he's done. Everything. Everything. You won't remember his name 100 days after I've gone to work there. Are you worried that the opposition is going to continually try to paint you in as a Trump and we don't want that style of politics up here and all that sort of stuff? I think people are tired of politicians. They want someone with executional skills. They want someone that's willing to tell them the truth, set a goal, and achieve it. That's happening all around the world. That's not just in Canada. You look at the the populist movements in Britain and what's happened in Colombia and now in the United States, you know, where is it written that only a politician can manage an economy? I don't think so. We're learning that that's not working out very well for us right now. And I'm not going to attack any of my fellow conservative candidates. I've already promised them. They have great ideas, I'm sure. We just haven't had a chance to hear them because you only get 20-second sound bites in a 13-person debate. But the truth is, I'll take all of their good ideas and take them to Ottawa. When the PCs lost the last election, they said they were looking for a kinder, warmer approach. Are you that kinder, warmer approach, Kevin? Well, let me give it to you by the numbers. Um, the reasons the PCs lost was they only got 18% of the vote from 18 to 35-year-olds. That is my sweet spot. Over the decades that I've been on television, supporting entrepreneurialism on shows like Dragon's Den and Shark Tank, I've met all of those people. And now they know who I am, which is a huge benefit. When I announced my Facebook Live announcement of my candidacy or entering the race. I did it first on Facebook, directly to them, and then seconds later walked out of the green room into national broadcast television. Within 40 minutes, it had reached 2.7 million people, and 40,000 people responded on our website. I'm selling memberships now to people that have never voted before, that came from other parties, that are just getting invigorated because they want to be entrepreneurs. I'm reaching out to millions of people on social media. And so, to me, 
the party must understand one thing, and they do. And I've made this promise to them privately, and I've made it public today. If I don't deliver a majority mandate in 2019, you can fire me. And the only way we're going to get that is to win 62% of the vote between 18 and 35. After I win the leadership, all I'm going to spend my time doing for the next year and a half is going across the country and speaking to 18 to 35-year-olds. I have to, because there's no other way to get a majority mandate. The things that I need to do to correct Canada's course, I have to do and I have to have a majority mandate. I can't, you know, repeal everything Trudeau's done to damage the economy unless I have that majority mandate. So that's the goal. Uh, we certainly know where you stand fiscally. What about socially? Uh, will you screen for Canadian values? What are your thoughts on the legalization of marijuana? So let's be clear. LGBTQI, I have their backs 100%. Marijuana legalization, 100%. Assisted suicide, 100%. Abortion, I'm not touching that law. I have a 23-year-old daughter. She believes that women should have their own rights with their own bodies. I agree with her. So these are not the big issues of the day anymore. They're important. But if we don't get to 3% GDP growth, all the promises Canada makes to its people in health care, in education, in military spending, and the social net that we promise ourselves, we can't afford it. The reason you saw the squabbling recently on the transfer to health care payments is we just don't have the money. We've killed off and completely wiped out our energy space. That's blame on probably Rachel Notley, but she wasn't able to even get Trudeau to listen to her. Trudeau has told us he wants to wind down or eliminate the oil sands, I have a new idea. Let's, uh, let's, let's wind down Justin Trudeau instead. <laughs> uh, uh, you said earlier on this week, uh, you alluded to paying for Senate seats. Are you worried that this kind of rhetoric will draw comparisons to Donald Trump? I enjoyed a 12-year career, very successfully, on multiple networks all over North America, a long run with Amanda Lang. There's over 10,000 hours of tape. We enjoyed a invigorating dialogue between a journalist. I have a lot of respect for her. I don't agree with anything she says. And that made great television. And I'm very proud of that work. I expect to see all of that tape chopped up and edited and see all of these comments from years back. But listen, that's not policy. That's television. Mm-hmm. What I'm talking about now is policy. Canadians aren't stupid. They know the difference. Lots have talked about uh, your inability to speak French. That's why you missed the French language debate and uh, declared your candidacy the day after. Obviously, you've mentioned that you're learning French and you're on a high-speed course to do that. Uh, What does it take for you to win in Quebec? Can you win in Quebec? Well, first of all, um, the fact that that debate was in French had nothing to do with me not participating. These debates are pointless. There is nothing getting out there because... You put 13 people on a stage, you give them a second sound bites. So not only is it bad television, they don't get their ideas out. So that's why I didn't attend that. And people say I don't speak French. C'est pas vrai, mon français. Mais Dieu, chaque jour. <laughs> so I'm getting better, slowly. Uh, Trudeau obviously talking about cap and trade uh, uh, in the near future. There was a situation where he was doing a uh, meet and greet in Peterborough. A woman stood up and used the Ontario uh, electricity rates as as a starting point, saying that she can't cope with these costs, and now we're moving into cap and trade. Your thoughts on all of this as we move with a uh, government in the United States uh, now headed by Donald Trump. Will that give Trudeau an out, saying there's no possible way we can do this now? 
got to stay competitive, and Trump's made us change our goals, change our plans. I would hope so. I would have hoped he would have done that the minute Trump was elected. He didn't. So what I've come to the conclusion, I think other Canadians are feeling the same way, you know, Justin Trudeau doesn't know what he's doing. And it's not just him. If you look at the mediocrity within his cabinet, I mean, you know, when you talk about diversity, and I applaud that, and that's what he said he wanted in his cabinet, you also have to ask for executional excellence. You have to have people that know how to do the job, that have a history of doing it successfully. He has an con- entire cabinet of mediocrity, and he moves them around a chessboard, you know, shuffling them around. They do the job in any file because they're just weak managers. And look, these are harsh words, I know, but it doesn't distract from the fact that it's the truth. I, I would never hire those people. I'd fire all of them when I get to Ottawa, believe me. I'm going to listen. The definition of great leadership is finding great people and asking them to do extraordinary things. I've done that my whole life. When you look at who I'll bring to work to actually write Canada's course, they are going to be highly trained professionals with long track records of executional excellence. We're going to do because I'm able to attack people like that. It's not going to be government as usual. I'm not a politician. I don't owe anybody anything in Ottawa. I don't owe anybody any money. I don't owe anybody any favors. The only person I'm going to be working for is you, the Canadian taxpayer. Everything else doesn't matter. Canadians are tired of politicians, and they should be. Uh, One last question, Kevin. Uh, Fellow Dragon, Arlene Dickinson, quite vocal about her thoughts on you. Are you worried that you're going to have to defend off this sort of allegation as you move forward with this? No, and I'm I'm very suspect, and we should shine a little transparency on this, Arlene Dickinson has been campaigning for Trump, probably, and I'm only speculating when I say this, to try and get a role in his government. What she said was so off-base, but particularly when I look at, you know, the years we spent together working. And so, you know, a few comments here. Her challenge, and I wasn't the only dragon trying to help her with this, she could never separate her emotions from investment decisions, which is why she did so poorly on Dragon's Down Investments. And, you know, you've got to realize... What we were making there was television. She never understood that. As a result, she made bad television. That's why she's not on it anymore. Kevin O'Leary has been with us, of course, declaring his candidacy for the leadership of the Federal Conservative Party with his set sights on the Prime Minister's job. Kevin, thank you very much for taking the time today. We certainly do appreciate it. Good luck. Take care. Bye-bye. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML.